Hello there, Jay. I may co-host a podcast, but nobody gets to typecast me. <laughs> Excuse me? I'm booked and busy reading books. Um, okay, I'll try this as well then. I love the 18th century, but I hate bitches. Eh, try again. <laughs> I like Marvel films because I'm marvellous. That is possibly better. Let the music play. What was that? Well, I thought it might be a fun idea to open the podcast with a new feature where we say a bit about ourselves, but in like a really sassy, pun-filled way. And I got the idea from Real Housewives, um, specifically Real Housewives of Cheshire, which is um, just, there's a new season of that out and I'm very much enjoying it. So basically, you introduce yourself. Usually it'll be something to do with friendship, diamonds, high heels, and maybe a pun on what the person does. So like Hannah might say... I I love being a yummy mummy, but I'll never lose my bite because Hannah's a dentist. Or they might, somebody who had a lot of dogs would say, I've got lots of dogs and I don't need any more bitches in my life. And that's why, um, I thought perhaps well, I assume why you said that you like the 18th century, but you hate bitches. Well, I was going to say that that makes sense if you own loads of dogs, but what if, why did well, I they, they say do, that no, I they hate do bitches? It, they do it all the time because it's all about them being friends and falling out. So a lot of them will be, um, don't bitch about me or, you know, they'll be, they'll be just, they yeah. say bitches a lot. That's what they say. Okay. Okay. Yeah. But I don't, I don't use that word. No. Uh, no. Just, so just what, what, what might your intro be if you were a real housewife of Cheshire you've got to think of something that's like a pun on who you are what you do I love the 18th century Mm -hmm. but I'm not 18 Uh, that's not very good is it no I mean it's well you give give it some thought I work on newspapers so I could be like I like to read all about it yeah but I hate bitches (laughs) (laughs) yeah it could be I'm always in the news researching my 18th century newspapers or or something like that Um, but yeah and there's another reason why we're alluding to Real Housewives which will become clear later in the show and we'll say more about that later yes yes Um, I do have one more question though about uh, Real Real Housewives of Cheshire yeah Uh, do you want to ask is Esther coming back because it doesn't look like it but then Namina came back so we don't know that means nothing to me no, well, so I wasn't going to ask that. I was going to ask, is the Real Housewives of Cheshire, and I suppose indeed the Real Housewives franchise more globally, satire? No, it's not satire, but it's an excellent model for a podcast in which some parts are scripted and there's kind of a plan, but we'll also say whatever shit is in our heads. And also, um, my relative said a really smart thing about Real Housewives of Cheshire the other night, which I wanted to um, to air uh-huh. So this might also help you understand what kind of a show it is. So she, we, we normally kind of back and forth in messages a bit whilst we're watching Real Housewives of Cheshire. And she said that it's like a sort of toxic, inverted version of something that would pass the Bechdel test. Mm-hmm. In, so do, do you want to tell the listeners what the Bechdel test is? Yeah, the Bechdel test uh, was a joke, basically. It was mm-hmm. said in jest by Alison Bechdel, who's a writer and graphic novel author. Mm-hmm. Where she said the be- the t- well, she said it's very rare that you get a work of media or fictional mm-hmm. culture 
where you have two character, two female characters in a scene talking to each other about anything other than a man. Yeah, is that right? So, so female characters always talk about men, and that became known as the Bechdel test because she said yeah. that in a in an article. Yeah. Whereas in the Real Housewives of Cheshire, you have lots of women, very few men. They very rarely talk about men. Mm-hmm. Um, even when Rachel's husband was getting, they, when they were getting a divorce, they mainly talked about how annoying it was that Esther kept texting him. So they they talk about women. They talk to women. They only really talk to women, and yet. If that was, it's almost like they were trying to prove that, well, you can fulfill all these requirements and something can still be like deeply problematic and uh, dodgy in its uh, representation of women. So, yeah, I just thought that was a smart thing to say and I wanted to repeat it. It is very cool. Yeah. Very cool. So, um, just speaks as well to the calibre of our listener. It does, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Listeners. Our, our listener is great, yeah. <laughs> um, so, does that mean we're going to talk about legit things instead of satire today? No, no, we're still talking about satire, but we're just doing it with a sassy intro. Um, so before we get into that, let's say a bit about what this podcast is. Okay, so this is the podcast that is Smith and Wall talk about satire. Yeah, in which that's right. In which I, Adam Smith, and I, Joe Wall, talk about the form, function, future, and history of satire. Yep. in a desperate bid to amass quantifiable impact for our research. Smith and Wall talk about satire, or as the kids are calling it, sortas. They are. They are all calling it that, aren't they? I've heard them. <laughs> so down, but the corn exchange. <laughs> And that's that's probably everything we need to say. Yeah. Everything we need to say about that. Okay. Uh, that was loud. What are you doing? I'm shouting. Why are you shouting? Well, I'll stop it now. But um, listeners, last time we were excited about being back in the booth and we, we did all our editing on computers with like a single speaker. So we didn't realise that when we, people were listening on headphones or in cars or in any context where you'd have two speakers, some of the audio would only come out on the left, I think it was, because our right speaker um, records much more quietly and we hadn't figured out quite how to address that. So unless you were listening out of your phone or PC or something like an Alexa, you might have had a bit of an annoying experience and we're sorry and we hope we can make it better. <laughs> we do. We hope we can make it better on this podcast that is the podcast Smith and Wall talk about satire. So now that we know what we're listening to and in what ear, mm-hmm. what are we going to talk about today? Satire in American literary culture and we're going to talk about the novel No One Will Miss Her by Kat Rosenfield with Kat Rosenfield which we are very excited about. Um, but first I wanted to ask how's your farm module going? My what module? Your module about your research module about farms where you're doing cold comfort farm and animal farm is that all going well for you? Aha uh, ha ha what an almost amusing misunderstanding. It's not a farm module, listeners. It's a satire module. And I would have thought you'd know that after we spent all that time talking about it in the last episode about Brass Eye. Well, no, it's definitely a farm module. My students will learn about the form, function, future and history of farms. I was thinking you could do The Story of an African Farm by Olive Schreiner. You could do Farm Boy by Laura Ingalls Wilder. You could do Old MacDonald Had a Farm. I don't know, I don't know why you're not doing that, to be fair. <laughs> Well, I mean, one of the reasons is it's not a farm module. <laughs> I mean, that's the major but reason. But why? Well, I, I actually, the way you've pitched it, a yeah. farm module sounds really interesting. Do you think a farm module would recruit? Do you think people would do a special research now module um, about about farms in books? Probably depends who the tutor was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, if I it mean, was a farmer, it might recruit yeah. really well. Yeah, I don't, I don't know, maybe, perhaps, but well, we don't know because that's not what the module is. But a farm yeah. module with those texts, I mean, what, what would it, what would you, what would be the learning outcome? 
Well, it could be eco-criticism, couldn't it? It could you be. You're learning about like agriculture and interactions with the land and yeah. um, stuff like that. Maybe we should... I mean, there isn't that much of... Yeah. I mean, probably old MacDonald had a farm, I would... Perhaps I'd do that in week 11, yeah. just for the diehards. And then they'd all do their yeah. assessment on that. Yeah. Um, mm, well, I don't know. I think it's interesting to consider. Maybe we should recruit someone who's an eco-critic on farms and, uh, and like, yeah. that module. Yeah, maybe we should. Okay, how is your actually true, real satire module going? It is genuinely delightful. So, so I've got a small group of I've got a small group of students, and um, and yeah, we're working through the module I described in the last episode. So so far, we've looked at uh, Animal Farm, we've looked at mm. Juvenile, we've looked at lots of theory of satire, which has been yeah. useful for me in terms of clarifying the thoughts about it. And, and another thing that has really struck me that I was slightly mildly aware of, but obviously when you're teaching something, you you get into it in a different mm. level of detail, don't you? But looking at Juvenile to teach mm. Juvenile satires from ancient Rome, yeah. He's saying the same stuff that also, yeah. like he says things like so. So his first essay translates the title is like why I write satire, and his answer is basically because what else am I going to do? And also I can't help it. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm so angry and mad about these stupid things. I have to point them out. Like I've got no mm. choice. Um, which is interesting. It reminded me of the conversations we we're having with Dieter Delkirk a few months ago about the mm. sort of satire as a satire as a coping strategy, but also how juvenile performs that role. Yeah. In the earliest years of this of this millennia, that's amazing. Sounds like you're learning as much from your students as they're learning from you. Yeah, I am. Yeah, I wouldn't that... call it research and teaching combined. No, I don't think. It's, but it's um, but we are learning from each other together. Yeah, and it's useful Aww. getting their ideas about stuff. Cat mm. Rosenfield. I mean, we'll just say now she yeah. is. Uh, I mean, Google Cat Rosenfield. She's a cultural commentator and content producer. She's mm-hmm. written about everything. I was looking this morning because I, I was aware of Cat. Because she she co-hosts a podcast for, called Feminine Chaos. Yeah. She wrote a big article about young adult fiction a few years ago. I recognise her names from reviews of sort of like comic book TV yeah. shows and stuff that I've seen. But like she's done, she's done, she's written about everything. But also, Cat is Cat has written young adult fiction mm. and has become quite closely associated with the debates in the young adult fiction yeah. world. And that's something else we can talk to her about, isn't it? Um, what like what role satire plays in all of that? Yeah. But before we do, what did you read anything satirical as a young adult, Joe? Um, well, what what age is a young adult? Is it different from teenager or is well, it I the same? I, I know people who are adults who, who read YA. Uh, well, yeah, but that doesn't. It's ad- it's adolescent, isn't it? Like teenager age. Do you think maybe it's like fifteen to twenty five or something? Mm. So, okay. so actually, what... let's backtrack. Question one: Did you read YA fiction? Uh, yeah, I probably didn't think of it as being called that at the time, but yeah, yeah, yeah. read a lot of um, Judy Bloom. Okay, what's yeah. that? Uh, an American writer of very popular stories, mainly aimed at young girls, although a few at boys. Um, some of them had very adult themes, such as Forever, which is the book everybody wanted but nobody's mum would allow them to have, where a girl starts um, having sex with her boyfriend and we hear about that and we hear about his penis, which is called Ralph. Um, so, yeah, we, we all read that, but we weren't supposed to read that um, and went around quoting the line, do all penises have a name? I can only speak for my own quite regularly. But there was also Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret, which was about uh, getting breasts and periods. Um, again, controversial among some mums. And one's about more sort of acceptable topics like parents getting divorced or fathers dying or friendships shifting and changing as you move to high school. Or 
uh, at the most surreal end of the scale, needing a full body brace because you have um, scoliosis, which lots of people um, were given that book when they needed braces on their teeth as if to sort of say, could be worse. Yeah. You could be in a full body cast for four years. Um, yes, they read a lot of Judy Bloom, and then I think I just sort of, there's that transition bit isn't it where you, you're moving from like children's books into the books that you'll eventually read as an adult and probably that was a lot of like borrowing books from my mum and books that sit in that gap like by people like Jane Gardam and Faye Weldon and Penelope Lively well, but what, did you, what did you read as, as a, a teenager, teenager as a young adult um, I mean on the one hand I read a lot of co- <laughs> read a lot of comics right. and I read a lot of novelizations. Tie-ins of TV mm. and film programs. Um, so I read. If I wasn't reading Batman or X-Men or Spider-Man, I was reading novelizations of episodes of the X-Files or Smallville um, and programs like that, or film tie-ins. Those are mm. those are a series of novels uh, that were set in the universe of the Aliens fr- franchise, and I right. read loads of them. Um, so I mean I know I just said I was reading <laughs> books about penises called Ralph but did you read any proper books well this is the thing yeah well that was the main thing that I <laughs> that was the thing that I most often read that was sort of aimed I think at an adolescent boy or mm. an audience of adolescent males there was other stuff that I did read as well um, but that's the kind of teenage I was reading like I was reading other books mm. like, I tried to I read Lord of the Rings I remember I tried that didn't get far. I remember there was one English, the one English teacher who at parents' evening said Adam needs to stop reading comics so much mm. and read novels because he's a really, he says modestly, he's a really strong student. But I think what's letting him down is like he just needs to read more widely. Mm. Um, and he said you should read Northern Lights by right. Philip Pullman, which I did. Right. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean I. So I sort of didn't, but I didn't read yeah. stuff. There wasn't like a YA genre that I particularly... I don't think it existed in the same way. Yeah. And I think it was primarily first and to a, an extent still is probably more heavily marketed at girls. Yeah, I tell you what, I did read loads of. Between the age. No, no, that was stuff. not that young. Um, no, Bernard Cornwell's Sharp novels. Oh, right, yeah. Yeah, I absolutely loved them. Swashbuckling <laughs> Rifleman, yeah. Richard Sharp. I read loads of them. I used to read... Um, Patrick O'Brien's novels about uh, again like Master and Commander yeah. Avery and Hornblower so I read so I read loads of that yeah. kind of like 18th 19th century military adventures gosh I don't think there's a single book in common that we both read as teenagers is there? I read Animal Farm oh yeah I read Animal Farm yeah Yeah. and uh, 1984 yeah and in fact not only did I read Animal because I knew we were going to talk about satirical stuff we read as as teenagers mm. but I read Animal Farm when I was like 12 or something and they in my. I read it when I was eleven. No, really. I'm joking, <laughs> in my local town, the town of Worksop, where mm-hmm. it, one of the towns where I was growing up, um, they used to do these reading challenges where you'd have to read six books in the summer, and then write reviews of them in the yeah. in the brochure. And I actually, when I was visiting my parents recently, found my twelve-year-old me's review of Animal Farm. Would you like to hear it? Uh, yes, I'd love to hear it. Thank you, Adam Smith. I read Animal Farm. It's by George Orwell. A politically manipulative and sinister tale of tyranny, power, betrayal, corruption and rebellion powerfully written to twist the emotions of the reader, making an example of the darker face of modern history. Making an example of the darker face of modern history. Do you want to know what else I read? Okay. Uh, Yeah. 
Dirk Gently's Detective Agency right, by Douglas okay. Adams. Absolutely fantastic. A detective sci-fi ghost story that is absolutely hilarious. When everything is getting worse, our man who believes everything is connected by interconnectedness fits it all together. Brilliant. It's all connected by interconnectedness. <laughs> yes. It's a powerful glue. It's isn't funny because it? I hadn't noticed this when I was looking at them when I saw these when I was at home. But there's like you can tick a little smiley face or a little sad face. I tick two smiley faces Aww, for them. Nice. And then the other book that I've got a photograph of is my review of Ron Martz's graphic novel Batman vs. Aliens. <laughs> Straying a little from the traditional alien storyline, it makes one of the most exciting and brutal soaked stories yet to grace the a Cape brutal Crusader. soaked story. Yeah. What does that mean? Don't know. Uh, oh, betray- it's betrayal. Betrayal. It's betrayal. Soaked. It's my okay. hammer right. Yeah. So I did. So, so we both went yeah. Animal Farm, didn't we? Yeah. And um, so we did anything else that you would say was satirical? Um, well, I remember when I was in year eight. So, for listeners around the world, mm. what age is that? Like a twelve? Twelve, thirteen. Yeah, my auntie on my dad's side got me the Private Eye right. annual, um, which is like a big hardback mm. book. And I remember not only reading that page to page and finding it fascinating and enjoyable, but it partly inspired me to because I was already. I was a bit of a geek at school, a bit of a nerd, and I like I had I ran a school magazine, uh, which I also invented and was mostly the only writer for. And we'd sell I'd sell for twenty p an issue, and then use the money to pay for the photocopying for the next issue. Um, but after I read this private eye annual, it took on a satirical turn. Right. And I basically I, I changed the format of my newsletter to look like private eye, and I put cartoons in it. Unfortunately, the thing that I was satirizing was the teachers and things that were happening at the school. So. It, I got into trouble and had to have a meeting with the head of year and then from then on everything had to be read before I printed it by right. university officials because goddamn censorship. University officials? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah sorry, school, 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 sorry, school right. officials. It's a Freudian slip. Yeah. No, like the head of year had to read everything before I was allowed to photocopy it from then on because they were concerned it might fall into the hands of, of teachers. And there, were, there was some genuinely right. investigative journalism in there <laughs> um, that I think would have been really controversial if mm. it had got to parents. So, got censored, man. Wow. That's um, that's quite the story. Did you read anything satirical as a YA? Uh, I, I used to read Viz quite a lot. Oh, cool. Yeah, I mean, some of Viz is puerile and silly and stupid, and but they did, um, I think maybe then more than now, have some satirical um, elements. And I just, I think when I first discovered Viz when I was about 14, I just thought it was like the funniest, most subversive um, thing ever. And um, yeah, I, d- I just used to not read the ones like Sid the Sexist and the Fat Sacks because I didn't... I think I was just a bit disturbed by them. Yeah. I, used to, I used to like the ones that were like parodies of photo stories like you get in girls' magazines and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and when it was a bit surreal as well, I liked yeah. that too. Yeah. What do you think about YA fiction now? Do you read... I mean, well, you must have... Well, no, I, I haven't for a while, although I did used to read the stuff that my um, relatives were reading when they were younger adults or when I had more interaction with their reading matter. So I have read all of that stuff like Twilight and... All whatever franchises were, were big. just lots and lots of dystopias. Didn't want to no, there were people like living in in zones and and eating pills and <laughs> like there's there's a there, it seemed like there was a rash of them. Whereas like every book would be some variation on like I am I am a Q. That means I can only go beyond the purple perimeter fence, and the, the guards will shoot me if I ever try and fall in love with an R. Um, and it, like just so many variations on on things like that imagine a world where yeah um, yeah i mean it's interesting isn't it with ya fiction because i mean i've not read i've read like the first two twilights out of interest when mm. it was a big deal um i've 
not read the Hunger Games, but I've watched the films, that yeah. sort of thing. But there's there are texts that seem to uh, that feel to me like they're in that genre, but they're actually not. They're like uh, uh, not, not um, targeted at adults and stuff. Mm. So like um, so, Noughts and Crosses that is YA, isn't it? Yeah. Although when it was televised, it was you know in in normal evening BBC mm. TV slots. Like it wasn't on CBBC. Or but we whatever. teach on our module theorizing literature, power, and identity. We uh-huh. teach the power by Naomi Alderman. Yeah. Feels to me like a YA novel. Yeah, it's a bit, it's a bit crossover, isn't it? Yeah, I'd say. Um, and I think there's a few ones like that. I think if you were marketing it specifically at a YA audience, they'd probably say like, "Could you take out all that stuff about like Another the journalist? Ch- he's boring." And like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And there was quite graphic violence in there, actually. Yeah, it? yeah. But it felt to me stylistically really similar, yeah. really reminiscent of mm. of YA. So yeah. interesting thing happening. There's someone we can talk to more about this. Yeah, isn't there? yeah, yeah. Which is our guest, Cat Rosenfield. Only we had Cat Rosenfield on the line. Yes. Um, but who is Cat Rosenfield? Good question. Cat Rosenfield is a writer, illustrator, advice columnist, entertainment journalist, zombie enthusiast, author of the novel Amelia Ann is Dead and Gone, and now of the novel No One Will Miss Her, which is going to form a big part of our conversation today. She is also co host of the excellent podcast Feminine Chaos. Yes. And is described by, what was it, WealthySpy.com? WealthySpy.com. As an enthusiastic lady. That's right, yeah. <laughs> that's, not, that's not the quality we're looking for today no. uh, in particular. But... No, and do you know what else she, um, do you know what else Cat Rosenfield did? She no. collaborated extensively with Stan Lee, the father of Marvel. Oh, yeah, so that, yeah, will, um, is... that, that very much speaks to your intro, doesn't it? You it like does. Marvel, but you're not marvellous. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So I'm really excited to speak to Kat about this novel, which has been described as satirical, hasn't it? It has, yes. And um, interestingly, even some of the review language that isn't explicitly engaging with it as satire uses some of that language that we've talked about in relation to satire Mm. of of violence and injury. So, for example, um, one review in front of me here describes it as blade sharp and whip smart and um, I think we'd both agree that it is both of those things wouldn't we? Absolutely yeah I mean an interesting thing happened where we knew we were speaking to Kat we knew it had been described as satirical we both listened to it on audible because Mm. it hadn't been released yet in paper in paper uh, in hardback there was no physical copy of it in the UK so we listened to it listened to it quite quickly really enjoyed it and then spent a few days dwelling on it Mm. and thinking about the ways in which it might be satirical and I was talking to my colleague who I share an office with about it mm-hmm. and I sort of said yeah it is quite satirical because it's about this working class woman who uh, well uh, <laughs> a wealthy uh, why this why are you doing that the satire kicks in because she basically gets yes but you just did a massive spoiler well I thought we could beep it out oh, okay alright <laughs> <laughs> The point is, once you've read it and you know what happens, you'll understand why we th- why it's satirical and why we're yeah. talking to Cat. But yeah. the best way to find out for yourself, seeing as we've just censored my massive spoilerific summary, mm. um, is to read it. So how can people read it, Joe? With their eyes, ideally. Yeah. Um, yeah, so at the, at the time we were prepping for the interview, this book wasn't available in hard copy in the UK. So as... As I say, we both uh, listened to it on Audible. It is released on Amazon on November the 11th, which by which time we may already have put this episode out. But if we get in ahead of November the 11th, just pre-order it. I would. Yeah, it's yeah. well worth it. It is well worth it. I've enjoyed listening to it on Audible. I'm going to buy it. So as this intro has also hinted, um, the, the, this book really 
is all about twists and turns, mm. which presents an interesting challenge when discussing it with Kat. But uh, I think the premise that people need to know is that basically a woman called Lizzie from a backwater town called Copper Falls is dead. And the rest remains to be seen. Yes. So let's talk about it without further ado yeah. with Kat Rosenfield. Yeah. Hi. Welcome, Kat. Thanks for coming on the podcast. And we're going to be talking about your new novel, No One Will Miss Her, which we've both finished recently, um, which Washington Post described as amusingly satirical and darkly bloody. And I'll be interested to hear the extent to which you think of it as satirical. I mean, I, there's no debate. It's definitely bloody. But um, <laughs> you want to talk about the satirical aspect. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned satire is potentially difficult because... You know, if you're doing satire, you could be accused of, for example, I think you mentioned like doing dog whistles or to be a satirist, to want to do satire, you you do have an agenda. Like there's a point you want to make. There's something you think is ridiculous and you then are trying to make that point through satire. So inevitably it is going to have an agenda. So that can quickly be collapsed into being accused of having a dog whistle. Do you think from your perspective as a, as a cultural commentator that satire is much more difficult now? I think it is. Um, I think it has you know, a lot to do with, um, I'm going to, you know, borrow from my my friend Lee Stein, who wrote what I think is one of the best satirical novels I've ever read, Self Care, you know, to note that it's, you know, people are, are resistant to engaging with irony, they're resistant to engaging with, with satirical depictions of things that are, you know, sort of de facto, or, you know, at least amongst people who consume a lot of culture are considered capital G good, um, you know, to laugh at it is seen as you know, like laughing or punching in the wrong direction. And so, yeah, in, in a landscape where one of the most prevalent frameworks basically is power and privilege, and that's sort of how culture gets analyzed across the board, it's it's definitely the most prevalent lens. I think it's much harder for satire to find a place in that landscape. This is something we talk about all the time. Why do you think that's happened, Kat? <laughs> Well, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I I was an entertainment reporter um, at MTV News starting in maybe like 2014, I want to say, which is the moment at which I would say this sort of awakening started taking place across the board in culture. Suddenly, like a lot more people were intent on analyzing everything they consumed through this one particular lens. Um, and I, you know, I was resistant to that at the time. And I, I just thought, you know, God, is this really, is this really going to be an across the board thing? Because, you know, it's quite limited and it's quite boring. And it means that you, you know, you can miss a lot of what makes um, art a lot of fun or what can make it moving, you know, if you just insist on flattening it all into this one particular discursive uh, mode. But yeah, but it did, it did just kind of take hold. And now it's everywhere. And why did that happen? I don't know. I think that the election of Donald Trump probably didn't help. It's almost as though there was a perfect storm to kind of encourage people to only see things in this one very myopic way and um, to get the impression that it was sort of morally urgent that they only see things in this one myopic way. Like if you tried to redirect the conversation back to a more, you know, sort of Old, old school critical framework, then you were doing something that indicated you weren't down with the cause and the cause was all important and what were you doing? One of the things I really like about feminine chaos is that you you, you can never quite predict what the next 
episode will be about like you talk about all kinds of different things and sometimes it's bad art friends or um close reading cringy poetry or talking about something that's happened in the in the weeks leading up to to the episode or midsummer um, murders or mid- yeah it's always, <laughs> um i love it when just randomly there'll be some sort of british british show um suddenly makes an appearance in there yeah it's so yeah, it's it's eclectic and wide ranging, and that's one of the things that that I really appreciate about it. But we've we've noticed as well that like quite often conversations around like almost a sort of dogged, willful literalism in people's responses to many things, but perhaps quite often to YA fiction and to the idea that you know if a character says something, that means the author thinks that thing, and that is that's a massive problem, mm-hmm. and. Quite a few times, then you will you will talk about an example from satire and say, well, like, so how how would this land if we if if we assume that like the voice of the character is the voice of the person? Can this still work? And it seems like it's often somewhere that you go to to talk about this tension between the idea of like authorial voice and character voice. I don't know. Is is that something that that you're ever aware of that that you you come back to this and that there are crossovers in terms of thinking about irony and parody and and just subtlety and nuance generally oh yeah I mean as a well not just a cultural commentator but also a writer of fiction I'm completely fascinated and often disturbed by um you know the way that this new set of rules seems to be cropping up surrounding how we're supposed to write stories and you know and what stories are considered quote unquote yours to tell as a person of whatever identity i mean this is something that i i first noticed in why fiction and i think that has to do partly with the fact that I just was there. Um, I was a YA fiction author before I started writing for adults. And also with the fact that content aimed at young people, you know, kids and teenagers, just tends to be kind of a ground zero if you're going to eventually have some kind of moral panic of this type. It tends to kind of incubate there first because it's very easy to sort of get a lot of people clutching their pearls over the idea of some vulnerable child being harmed by whatever it is that they're reading or watching. I think also because, you know, it's a fascinating, again, I think disturbing thing, but depending on who you talk to, the idea of imagination is becoming more and more stigmatized, you know, amongst authors of fiction, as though, you know, you've done something bad, or you've overstepped in some way, maybe you even committed some kind of violation by attempting to grasp the interior life of a person who doesn't share certain characteristics with you. Last year, we spoke to Andrew Doyle, who does the character Titania McGrath. Have you encountered his stuff? <laughs> yes. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, and I mean, the first time we spoke to him, which I think was about two years ago now, yeah. he was saying that when when it broke, when the story came out that it was him who was the voice of Titania McGrath, he was immediately leveled with a lot of people sort of saying, how dare you use the voice of a white woman? How dare you use the voice of a young white woman? <laughs> And I mean, that entertained him because the whole his whole satire is a satire on precisely that kind of response or the culture that engenders that kind of response. So we, were, we were just talking about what we read as teenagers and trying to think if any of it could be described as remotely satirical. And I was having a, a hard time. But That's a good question. You know, I feel like there might have been, but 
I don't know if right now I, I haven't read YA in in a while. Um, you know, since I stopped writing it, I've gravitated much more towards content aimed at grownups. But I would say that at the moment, writing a satirical YA novel would be virtually impossible. Yeah, I was. We were thinking about this. I used to read a lot of like point horror and goosebumps and stuff. I suppose that there was like a parody element of that. I wouldn't say mm-hmm. hysterical. My daughter had a really funny book that was like a parody of Twilight that was quite um, quite smart at aping the, the tropes of Stephanie Mayer's writing, but that's about all I can think of. Lately. Yeah, well, I mean, is a satire and a parody and a spoof, are these all the same thing? Or is it yeah, kind of well, fungible? They're well, not, are they? I think, you know, we, it's a broad umbrella for our, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for our purposes. Well, satire can use parody. But yeah. parody isn't automatically satire. Yeah. <laughs> this is the part of the conversation that I was nervous about getting into because I was like, they're going to figure out that I don't really know what satire is. No, that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> no, we're constantly afraid people are going to figure out we don't really know what satire is. <laughs> <laughs> Comes with the territory. But no, it, I think I think you're right though that it would be really hard to write a YA novel that was satirical because, like, what are you gonna, what are you gonna pinpoint? What are you gonna skewer? What what is anybody going to deem it to be appropriate for teens to like to be viewing through a satirical lens? Gosh, you know, I just realized there is one book that probably could, you know, I don't know. It's actually it's it's almost a little too earnest to be satire, but it's by Lila Sales. And uh, I can't remember the title of it now, which is uh, infuriating me. But she wrote um, a YA novel about a girl who gets canceled after making um, a sort of a Justine Sacco-esque joke that it was, you know, supposed to be a send up of racism, but was interpreted by a bunch of angry people online as racist. And I think that that, you know, it's interesting because I think she she quite successfully lampooned the moment and the culture that allows something like that to happen. Um, but the response to the book was incredibly polarized and in many cases incredibly angry. Um, you know, people who hated, you know, the idea that she might be either mocking something that was deeply serious to them or that she might be asking them to empathize with a character who they wanted to reject on moral grounds, just, you know, wholly and uh, with extreme prejudice. Wow, we should check that out. That sounds, yeah, yeah, that sounds like an interesting experiment. Listeners, that book is called If You Don't Have Anything Nice to Say and it's available at all good book retail outlets. I mean, that's a, I think that's a problem with satire in the in this moment generally. Like we were talking to someone in January who had written a, satir- a satire of the um, oh, I always forget the name of it. Was it Huga? The Norwegian? Yeah, Huga. Yeah, the book of How to Be Happy, the Danish book of How to Be Happy. Huga. He had written a parody of that called Junji, How to Live Well the North Korean Way. So it was sort of like a satire on that kind of well-being books, well-being and book, appropriating other cultures. But when Indeed. we said, why did you use North Korea? He was like, that's the only target I dare use. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's funny. It's like, it's the exaggeration thing, isn't it? Like mm. if we can, if we can sort of commodify any national culture, what about North Korea? But he was like, also practically, I didn't dare make fun of anybody else. Yeah. Which was kind of interesting. 
Yeah, that's kind of fascinating because that's, um, you know, this idea of like, who are you allowed to not just make fun of, but who are you allowed to depict as a villain is something mm. that's really kind of gripping, um, you know, the fiction writing community right now. And I'm thinking specifically, um, it's so bizarre, but I just read Hillary Clinton's thriller that she wrote with Louise Penny, not a satire. And yet, um, you know, it's very clear that she was working hard to avoid uh making her villain somebody who um you know somebody from like a marginalized group or you know or investing in like tropes of the sort of middle eastern and islamic terrorist and um you know her solution was to basically imagine that the villains who i you know spoiler alert are trying to detonate nuclear bombs in a variety of u.s cities are actually aggrieved members of the far right you know who just are so upset about things like gay marriage and mass immigration that they're willing to destroy our you know three major population centers in the united states and kill millions of people um you know for the sake of, of getting political power back so that was really interesting to me yeah i love the idea that the guy in the viking hat who stormed the white house could be also involved in putting nuclear bombs anywhere <laughs> yeah yeah you know he didn't seem like a man who had really put much thought into what he was even what he was wearing that day let alone what he was doing um yeah. i'm not sure that i would ascribe too much uh you know conspiratorial prowess to that guy particularly yeah that point in there about who are you allowed to make fun of is making me um want to segue towards no one will miss her because what what i was thinking when you said that is I think there's pretty much a consensus that we are allowed to make fun of people like Adrian Richards, right? Like, mm -hmm. you are. Oh. But I think, I feel, sorry. So, like, for example, Bo Burnham's White Woman's yeah, Instagram. Yeah. yeah, but I feel that one of the things this novel does really well is that it, it seems to me that it skewers and pinpoints her and some of the kind of facets of who she is and the things she does and the way she dresses and talks but it does it doesn't feel to me like like you're going after that kind of woman and for all kinds of reasons you know that that is made particularly complicated and and nuanced but it feels to me like you're you're not going after that type or at the same time as you're showing it was that something that you were thinking about how were you thinking about the characterization of Adrian when you were writing the novel well, I mean, Adrian is an interesting counterpoint to Lizzie. Yeah. Um, both of these women are sort of living behind masks that either are imposed on them by other people, you know, an identity that other people have created for them, or in Adrian's case, it's one that she sort of created for herself. Um, you know, her her identity is predicated on this Instagram account where, you know, she she puts up a public self that people kind of love to hate. Um, Lizzie Willette is the character who's deceased at the start of the book, narrating from beyond the grave. And you find out that she also was sort of assigned this identity that wasn't really entirely her um, because she grew up in a small town where she became sort of an an avatar for you know people's various grievances and so her reputation would precede her everywhere she goes and nobody really cared about who she was and you know both of these women have the status of the sort of the hated pariah who everybody else bonds over their loathing of so you know I I was interested in sort of 
seeing how those two played off of each other, you know, each one of them sort of fetishizes things about the other's life, not realizing what they have in common. Adrian, particularly, I mean, she obviously is a, a really miserable person, but she's also incredibly lonely. She doesn't have any friends. She doesn't have any intimate relationships in her life. Every relationship she has is completely transactional. Um, so, you know, I think it's not hard to feel a little bad for her, even if you find her also quite loathsome. Yeah, yeah. And there's, I just, I feel like the balance between sort of showing us exactly what she's like and what kind of very recognisable character she is and and showing us all the ways in which she is like distasteful and unpleasant and all the rest of it whilst also maintaining or, or sort of refraining from going all out on it like she doesn't end up for example like Rose Rothario in um back in the kidney short story she's she's not <laughs> like a ludicrous figure of contempt Mm-hmm. That, so it seems to me anyway yeah. yeah yeah there's an interesting oh gosh it's so hard to talk about isn't it without <laughs> without like going into specifics but there, i think there is it's, it's okay to say they have a kind of relationship at the start of the book don't they i mean one at least one of them thinks of it as a friendship which invites these comparisons between the two mm-hmm. and i feel like as the reader as i went through the book i sort of reoriented myself from at the beginning, Lizzie is massively the object of your sympathy. And then as the book goes on, you sort of realise maybe, Adrian, there are, there's, a, there's a loneliness and a sadness there. Mm. But also before Lizzie was killed, there were aspects of her life that were OK. So I felt like it, the book at the beginning, you feel like it's leading you towards taking these two extreme views. But then by the end of the book, you just realise that people are more complicated than you might immediately assume. Is that, was that intentional? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, you know, in so in so far as um, I don't know, I feel like I'm getting much more credit now for for stuff, some stuff that happened by accident in the <laughs> writing. But um, but yeah, you know, this idea of sort of playing a role because people expect you to and how people use that either as a defensive tactic to, to keep people away or maybe as another kind of tactic to their advantage in ways that I can't talk about without spoiling something. Um, yeah, this is, this is hard to, it's hard it is, to discuss. Yeah. But I felt like um, there is or something that it made me reflect on is because there is social media in the book, isn't there? There is like Lizzie has a Pinterest and Adrian's, Adrian's, got, Adrian's got Instagram and stuff like that. And it feel, and also you have characters. So, for example, there's Bird who is investigating Lizzie's murder. Characters who, who make assumptions about people based on their social media, which is not a crime because the social media is presenting a certain view. But I felt like the social media has a sort of flattening effect on identity. And it's kind of like people saying, this is the thing that I am. And then other people, perhaps all too keenly assuming that's the case. But then by the end of the book, you realise, obviously there's a depth, there's a texture to people. One of the parts that I enjoyed writing, um, you know, which is not a spoiler, was, um, you know, the the Facebook posts that crop up after Lizzie is dead. Uh, you, know, yeah. you know, she was she was so widely loathed and nobody was really friends with her. But once she's gone, um, you know, people want to kind of position themselves as having been close in a way that they weren't. Yeah, I thought that was darkly funny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was one of those I didn't didn't really know you, but I'm sure you're in a better place or something like that, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Sort of sort of like um, you know, I don't know if you guys have high school yearbooks in England, but 
that um you know it's a, sort of a thing at the you know at the end of the year everyone has their yearbook and everyone signs it and you get these messages where it's like stay sweet you know like love you like a sister from somebody who you did not ever interact with i mean a scene that we were both we were talking when we were talking about it that we were both really keen on was a scene where um adrian and lizzie are shopping the together yogurt. yeah they're yeah. shopping together <laughs> in the, in the department store of copper falls and the, this is i mean how would you describe copper falls what's the proper way of describing a town like copper falls uh very small very remote uh rural new england town yeah and so adrian who she's not a girl boss is she but she's kind of like pretty rich and from the city and stuff is in this department store trying to buy is it icelandic yogurt yeah yeah she's, she's looking be, for icelandic be, yogurt yeah it'd be yogurt yeah so icelandic yogurt and there's a moment where the cashier is sort of like going what what and um <laughs> adrian is kind of yeah it, well it, it was interesting because the first time i read it it felt to me like adrian was making fun of the person in the department store for not knowing what icelandic yogurt was but then through lizzie's eyes you see that she knows what icelandic yogurt is the cashier but she's sort of she's amping it up as well to make fun of adrian so in that situation everybody thinks that someone up Everyone else thinks that someone else is the butt of the joke, except Lizzie, who can see it clearly and intervenes to shut it down. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, that must have been a fun scene to write, but also was that kind of the ambition there? Yeah, I mean, you know, what I'm trying to, uh, you know, get at in a lot of this book is that there is this class-based resentment um, that you see a lot in these rural towns where, you know, the the people who live there year round are very working class you know the town itself is you know maybe kind of dying slowly from neglect um if you drive through the part of maine where this book takes place you'll see all of these towns like this where you know a lot of the storefronts are shuttered and dusty and you know no, no nothing's been in there for a long time and you have all of these houses that are sort of dilapidated and caving in from the inside you know they were like you could buy one of them for like thirty thousand dollars and live there but, but what would you do there? Um, I've spent a lot of time driving through these places and thinking, you know, how do people live here year round? What do they do? What, what are their lives like? Um, so one of the elements of living in a place like that is that you do have this resentment where, you know, you have a population of people who have more money, you know, who are sort of at leisure, who come in during the summer months and you need them. The town needs them to survive. Um, you know, they need that tourism money, but the people who live there year round are pretty resentful of these rich folks coming in and, you know, just kind of ruining things over the course of a few months. And, you know, and they have to pretend that they don't care and they have to pretend to like them. So there's this transactional nature uh, to the relationship that I wanted to explore there as well. A phrase that's come up in lots of the publicity around the novel is gone girl for the gig economy and so we were just interested in thinking about the if you perceive there to be a kind of a relationship between this text and and Flynn's novel because it also when you were talking about the kind of dead-end towns obviously there's that element to gone girl I mean it also reminded me of Gillian Flynn's dark places as well have you read that mm -hmm. yeah yeah it, 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 there were aspects of this text that reminded me of that too but yeah I mean it is there a relationship here between No One Will Miss Her and Gone Girl? Gosh, I don't think that I could be writing a thriller about a toxic marriage, uh, you know, in the year 2021 and not be thinking also about 
Gillian Flynn's Gone Girl. You know, that was it was certainly in my head as I was writing. And, you know, one of the things about that book is that it did define a kind of a new era of thrillers. So, you know, what I was thinking about more than, you know, attempting to sort of satirize it or answer back to it in any way was just what did this book do right? What do I want to emulate? What do I want to make sure I don't do too closely to it? Um, one of the things that I that I did like about Gone Girl um, and that I, I tried to sort of replicate here, I'm not sure how successfully, was that the twist happens in the middle of the book and then what you are left with is still this intrigue of, well, what happens after the twist? A lot of thrillers end with the twist and I was really you know inspired by the way Gone Girl doesn't let itself off the hook there you know you still have to stay with these people and see what happens afterward um and you know you have to live with them in a very sort of uncomfortable place as the book comes to a close so that was something that I was thinking a lot about when I was writing this book yeah, and we should say as well, it is an excellent twist. I think that's the consensus everywhere, isn't it? That it's, um, <laughs> the, it's worth um, yeah. the wait. It's phenomenally well executed because it turns on a sentence, doesn't it? It's like, like a clause of a sentence changes the entire book. I can't think of another novel that does yeah. that. So, Thank you. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, really, really good. Um, I mean, I suppose thinking about, so I, I'd heard that I'd heard you say, it's gone girl for the gig economy before I started listening to the the audiobook. So I, I had that in my mind and I was sort of looking for, for comparisons. I think because I went into it thinking of Gone Girl, and I think because the Copper Fall setting is so rural, and for instance, like Adrian mentions, doesn't she, that one of the things she likes there is that there isn't really a good Wi-Fi connection. So it's kind mm-hmm. of almost like a place from the not too distant past, but also not quite the present. That when mm. things kick off and you're very without doing any spoilers, you become very aware that it is now. That felt like a a difference to me. So for example, Gone Girl, a lot of it is about how the media informs the case and the perceptions of the case and how Amy's also able to like manipulate the media. Well, in this case, it's sort of social media, isn't it? And the kind of post Me Too climate and all of that stuff. I mean, that's all context that wasn't as realized Mm. when Flynn wrote her novel. So I wondered if that was a a Mm self-conscious thing as well. Yeah, I mean, a little... Right, a little bit. Yeah, I'm just trying to think. So Gone Girl is, you know, is not just about, obviously, it it was very much inspired by the Lacey Peterson case here in the States, um, and the way that the media kind of latched onto that and became obsessed with it. Um, But it was also very much about the economic downturn of 2008 and the impact that that had on people who had had previously pretty cushy media jobs, um, what that meant for their lives. So, you know, yeah, she was writing, obviously, sort of to that moment. Um, you know, for me, I, I was interested in having social media play a role in the book because I think it does create this interesting set of questions surrounding identity and public identity and how we're understood by people who, you know, who think they know us, but don't. Um, and then I'm just trying to think what the other, the other aspects were for me setting the book at the time that I did. Um, well, I think I ended up deciding on 2018 because I really wanted to include the uh, the baseball playoffs between the Yankees and the Red Sox, uh, which end up playing a small but sort of vital role in the the way that things unfold. Um, so that was part of it too. I mean, a line 
again we'll send you this and if you think this is too (laughs) okay but like a line that seemed really significant is um when a character says i'm a victim i'm a survivor and briefly contemplates getting a book contract i mean that felt that felt really satirical Mm -hmm. part of the oh yeah i mean you know this idea that you know I think the character who says that is seeing suddenly a future in which maybe she can reinvent herself. You know, here's something that's happened that would allow her to pivot away from the identity that she's become trapped by to sort of start a new life. And she kind of does. I don't think we've ever had to do. We've never. We've, we've never, never had to deal with spoilers before. Have no, we? yeah, no. yeah. I mean, one other thing, and again, I don't know to what extent this is just something that we brought to it as an 18th century and 19th century lecturer, but um, it felt like it, it was drawing on literature from. It felt like it fitted in a genre that has roots that go back a long way. For example, so the, there's lots of bits in the book where it feels like. You know, you get a sense of the uncanny, things that are familiar and unfamiliar or doubled or reflected in interesting ways. I I wondered if sort of the new technologies of social media and stuff, I think, opens up the potential for uncanniness, which this novel taps into in really interesting ways. More of an observation than a question, but what did you think about that? (laughs) Yeah, no, I I think that, um, you know, you've you've touched on something that was intentional was something that I was thinking about. Um, you know, the one of the books that I thought a lot about as I was writing this um, is a one by Daphne du Maurier called The Scapegoat. And I'm not sure if, um, you know, if anybody's familiar with that story, then even mentioning it is probably a spoiler. But, um, you know, I see that story as a really interesting precursor to a lot of the identity-based stuff, this sort of idea of seeing somebody's life and thinking that looks so good and not understanding that there's more to it than what you're seeing. Um, and you know that, that story was written at a time when the concept of social media was something nobody could conceive of at all. And so it's really fascinating that it could still kind of touch on these themes in a way that's very salient in 2021. I think we've, we've both got a question that broadly relates to animals and natural history, I think. So I'll just, okay. I'll ask mine first if that's all right. So I um, I noticed in reading around about kind of reviews and responses to the text that a lot of people, rather than saying, they're not so much saying like, oh, I won't give the spoiler away. They say, um, content warning there's a distressing scene with a cat and I found myself I was quite surprised by how affecting I found that scene with the young Lizzie and the cat and I just wanted um I just wanted you to say a bit more about that if if you don't mind like do you have a cat (laughs) we know know that cat has a cat because we've heard it purring on the podcast of course yeah yeah (laughs) yeah yeah yeah, I do um Rasputin, he's uh, he's not in the room with me right now because he, he loves Zoom calls and he would be trying to like knock the computer over. So, um, but uh, that scene with the cat was not easy to write. Um, it is apparently everybody's least favorite scene in the book. I've heard from multiple people who said that they, you know, they were giving the book one star and returning it to the store because they were upset by that scene. Um, which you know on the one hand i understand i love animals myself i find it much harder to watch a movie where a dog dies 
is then where a person dies. On the other hand, this book does open with somebody pulling a human nose out of a garbage disposal, <laughs> and nobody seems to find that upsetting at all. It's just the cat. So, That's so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I, say, I found, I mean, there were lots. I think we both had to listen to it on Audible because it's not in print here yet. And I found listening to it kind of fairly on and off constantly over the last week or so there are bits where you sort of slow down in whatever else you're doing at the time and stop and pause and process and the the cat one was one like that for me where it just it, it's just really affecting and 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 builds so slowly and relentlessly and powerfully that yeah I as someone who like I don't want to say cruelty to animals isn't a trigger for me, but it's not, it's, it's not the thing that like would usually get me the most. I, I found it, mm -hmm. um, yeah, it was really powerful. But so, yeah, I, I just wanted to hear a little bit more about the cat and I'm intrigued that people are um, putting the book down at that point because I think it's, it's just so well done. But I mean, John Wick had the same problem, didn't it? Like people refused to watch John Wick because of the dog death at the start spoiler right but the yeah. you know if that hadn't happened then there would not be a john wick you know no. the, none, none of it would have gone on and i think you know that's the the thing that drives me crazy is when people suggest that that scene was not necessary um because no it's it's incredibly necessary it's pivotal it's... to lizzie's development as a person so yeah. it's necessary in about seven ways isn't yeah. It? so yeah my animal question was and it's a question that I had when I, as a teenager, reading a lot of Stephen King novels as well. What is a loon? A loon? Oh, it's yeah. a bird. Okay. Um, yeah, they, um, you know, it's, it's a bird that lives in Maine, for sure. I've never actually seen or heard them anywhere else in the country. I think that they may be unique to like the Northern states, but they have this incredibly haunting cry um, that, you know, I mean, Stephen King relies on it a lot for scene setting when he's, you know, leaving somebody kind of in an alone and vulnerable position. And all I hear is the screaming of the loons. Um, if, yeah, if, uh, if you're not familiar, you should just look it up on YouTube. Well, it's something I wondered about as a, like I say, as a teenager reading Stephen King, because mm. there's, there's a bit in Pet Cemetery where they're burying the cat and um, there's horrible shrieking. And then someone says, what's that sound? And then the guy burying and goes, it's just the loons. And like 50 year old me. Right. Like, oh, yeah. Like lunatics or something. I, when I read it as a teenager, I was like a haunted madhouse <laughs> yeah. somewhere nearby. And then I spent it's the rest of my life wondering. And I'd forgotten that I was wondering about it until I was listening to this. Yeah. And then I thought it'd be more fun to we ask you. We need to know what a loon sounds yeah. like now. Yeah. They make, uh, you, should get, you should definitely listen to it. Maybe even like play it as a sound effect in this part of the podcast. <laughs> But yeah, they, well. they do two sounds. One is this incredibly haunting um, cry. It sounds like, you know, like a like a woman who's just had her heart broken, just, you know, this scream. And then they also do this creepy laugh um, that's like, yeah, if you if you hear it in the dark and you're alone, it's pretty creepy. Mm. Um, and I did have one other observation that might be like crazy, but it just occurred to me when I was listening to it is that, and also I'm teaching a module at the moment called Gothic Origins. So I'm, my headspace is very much in sort of the history of Gothic literature. And I, one thing I end up saying every week is about how, you know, Gothic is about the, 
the past coming back to haunt the present or creating a rupture in the present and and it's always about something that's been repressed returning and so on it occurred to me when i was reading this and again could just be my own perspective but i felt like the book i all the copper fall stuff to me felt like the like i say like it was in the recent past like we're in a world you know that i myself i feel a bit nostalgic for having like i mentioned earlier watched a lot of twin peaks and x files it feels like it's the past um but then the present world 2021 is always in danger of rupturing that like adrian richards and all of the baggage that she's got and everything that happens towards the end when we get out of copper falls with the internet and various things it feel it felt to me like it was gothic in the opposite way like we're in we're in a sort of nice little bubble in copper falls but everything that we as people who spend a lot of time on the internet are aware of is always on the brink of breaking through and ultimately that's the one I can't say what I was going to say, <laughs> but that, that's the one thing that not everybody remembers all the time in the book. Like some mm. characters forget, I think that there's 2021 or it's 2018. I know 2018 is, mm-hmm. is happening out there. So, I mean, did you, what do you think about that? Um, <laughs> I think that's a, a good observation. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't say that I was thinking about it super intentionally. Um, and one of the things about Copper Falls is that it's based on an actual town in Maine. Um, I should add that it's a much friendlier place, um, in, you know, in my experience than Copper Falls is to Lizzie. But one of the nice things about Maine, um, and if you're writing thrillers, this is, you know, a Maine concern, uh, Maine isn't like M-A-I-N, not the state, um, that, you know, you're constantly trying to find ways for your characters to not have access to the internet or not have access to their cell phones. Uh, cell phones and the ubiquity of them really ruin a lot of plots at this point. So um, when you get far enough north in Maine, you actually do come to these areas where there is just no cell service. There's no tower and, um, you know, everybody still has to have a landline. And I um, I spent two weeks a year in a place like this in Maine, completely unplugged camping. Um, and so so, you know, it occurred to me at one point that I was there, I was like, this is kind of like a timeless little bubble um, where, yeah, you know, the encroachment of digital technology can ruin it, but also, you know, people who are used to having it can find themselves really kind of at loose ends um, and very frustrated when they get into a place where they can't rely on all of these tools that they usually use day to day. It's a gift to the novelist, this place, isn't it? Where there's no Wi-Fi and no phone signal and the birds all sound like gothic giggling murderers. <laughs> almost too good. To- yeah. yeah, yeah. I uh, will be very, very upset when Maine gets entirely covered with cell phone service because it'll be a real loss to people who are trying to write books like this. I um, I thought I really liked Lizzie mm. <laughs> as well. Like. I, I'm going to miss her now the book is finished. I think one of my favourite lines as well is she says, this is not a spoiler, she refers to someone as being the sort of person who likes comedy but has no sense of humour. And, <laughs> yes. and then it's like, if you find yourself married to someone like that, unlucky for you because they're a fucking idiot. <laughs> 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 like, <that's, laughs> I thought that was a good line. But oh, um, I mean, looking at the right i mean you don't tend to write sequels and prequels and stuff but it occurred to me that there is a prequel in a prequel idea in this and a sequel idea uh the prequel i would encourage you to write would be (laughs) bird's previous case Mm -hmm. and um and i can't say what i think the sequel should be but uh have you thought about that or is it just kind of like don't revisit ideas 
Yeah, this cold case that Bird uh, solves or investigates and solves at the end um, is something that I came up with because I needed something to distract him. But um, I have been thinking a lot about it since then, actually, and thinking, you know, that if I were going to write a historical crime novel after the um, the book that I'm currently working on, that it would be that. And that if I were going to, you know, kind of um, create a a world. I like the idea more of creating a sort of a universe where you you occasionally run into the same characters um, in the way that Stephen King has done with, you know, with Derry and Castle Rock. Um, sorry, my dog is uh, yelling in the background. Um, you know, that I, I liked the idea of, of Bird, yeah, popping up again somewhere or of, you know, this case that he references of, you know, getting to find out more about what actually happened there and then sort of, you know, living through that you know, that moment. Um, I have not ever written a sequel. doesn't mean I wouldn't. Um, although one of my favorite things about this book was that it kind of ends with a question mark. You know, you know where, you know where things stand when you leave the characters, but there's always a possibility that something might happen differently down the road. Um, and I'm not sure that I want to resolve that tension. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I can understand that. Yeah. I think my favorite line just to conclude is um, when a character considers saying, I would like to see the manager, Karen, and instead just goes like, oh, fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> I liked, I liked mm -hmm. that. But... Well, I think one other bit that I liked, I know this isn't what the podcast is supposed to be, but one other bit that I really liked was one character whose ideal like getaway is like their their dream <laughs> their dream life if they could do anything would be to go and catch wild animals in the wild Louisiana, pigs, wild pigs in, the in the swamp. swamp. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> the, the, the types of goals that certain types of people might come up with, I think, you know, is uh, enjoyable. You know, what is what is your fantasy life? might be, you know, depending on who you are, might be something a little bit odd or really just genuinely unappealing to the average person. So the so it's been described as darkly darkly satirical and extremely bloody, isn't it? So um, amusingly satirical and darkly bloody. Yeah. So how would you account for that? Like if you, in what sense did you think it was a satirical novel? We've told you what we thought. What did you think? Oh gosh, I mean when I when I saw that line from the Washington Post, I was surprised and delighted. I was like, I guess I did that. Yeah, you know, um <laughs> when I set out to write this book, I was really writing toward and around the twist. That was the concept that I began with. And the humor that entered into it was sort of a you know, I don't want to say a happy accident, but it it happened along the way kind of organically. I find the idea of writing satire very intimidating. Um, so I don't think that I could ever do it intentionally, but I'm delighted to hear that I did some satirical things without meaning to. There's definitely satirical things in there, I think. Just once again, it's it's just a brilliant book and we've yeah. both hugely enjoyed it in a, oh, in a short so space much. of time. Thank you for a brilliant book. Thank you for a brilliant podcast. Yeah. Do you want to say where the podcast is and where people can find it? Oh, Feminine Chaos. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm currently holding down the fort myself with a series yeah. of guest hosts because Phoebe is on maternity leave, which is why uh, there's been no discussion of Midsummer Murders or other um, British British sitcoms or British television. Unfortunately, that's sort of her area of expertise. 
but we are on Patreon at patreon.com slash feminine chaos for subscribers. And at this point, I'm averaging one public episode per month. Uh, so you can find us there uh, any any place you get a podcast, basically. Definitely give it a listen because it's, yeah, it's yeah. one of my favorites. Massively oh, recommend. Thank you. And um, yeah, and thank you for taking the time to speak to us. I mean, it's amazing. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, it was my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. I really enjoyed talking to Cat Rosenfield. Yes, I really enjoyed talking to Cat Rosenfield too. It was weird, isn't it? Because as we've mentioned several times, we both listen to Feminine Chaos a lot. And yeah, and it's like I've heard her voice so many times, but never in the context of it responding to my voice. Yes. Yeah. yeah, to like, hear that voice like interact with you. Yeah. Is, yeah. But onto the, the subject of the book, though. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it's worth just endorsing No One Will Miss Her one last time. It is. I think it's wonderful. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I mean, just as just as we binged the podcast, we also both kind of listened to that book as fast as Audible would let us. We did. Um, not by speeding it up, but by devoting every spare minute to listening to it. And it is whip smart and darkly amusing and bloodily satirical and all the rest of it, isn't it? And it's just, it's just such a smart book that does what I like a book to do, which is to contain kind of sharp and shrewd observation and poignancy and pathos and also just kind of a slightly hard-edged humor at yeah. times as well it's just things things i like in a book and if, if it's got loons in it and cats as well then yeah. you know it's yeah. a perfect read it did occur to me as i was binge listening to it that in many ways it's my perfect book because i do enjoy i do enjoy mm. a crime thriller yeah but a crime thriller that's got a twisty, turny story that also mm. has resonant themes, that's also making social commentary, that also just has these lines every every now and then. There'll just be a really cuttingly dark comic line. Yeah. Thoroughly or or just something really evocative that conjures mm. a scene really economically. Yeah. 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 So um, definitely check so, it out. So yeah. Um, and you can... Oh, we've already said about pre-ordering it, haven't we? We have, yeah. yeah so make sure okay. you've done that. Um, I did have one question though, Joe. Oh, is there so, one last loose end to tie up there in is. the manner of all detective fiction? <laughs> there is. Just one more thing. Just as before Columbo, you put your Mac on. Yeah, yeah as Columbo would say. Uh-huh. You said at the start of the episode that the idea of the real housewives would be coming back later. Right, yeah. I mean, it is, to be fair, a tenuous link, but there is one point in this novel at which a character is uh, is mentioned as having entertained the notion of becoming a real housewife in mm-hmm. in the book. So, so partici- it, it which means, kind of, it links to that. Yeah, which means participating in a uh, reality TV programme. Mm, structured reality, of, yeah. I, well, I don't know what it would be for this one. Real Housewives of the West Coast, or Maine. Real Housewives of it's Maine. the East Coast, isn't it? Real Housewives of the East Coast. I love geography. So, we are um, so good at America, aren't we? <laughs> we yeah, are, I love American things. <laughs> it seems like Real Housewives of Maine wouldn't work if there's no like signal on mobile phones and everybody's just kind of no. listening to the loons all the time. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'd watch that. <laughs> yeah, um, I'd watch that. Yeah. Yeah. So, how does that come back? How, well, that that was it. It came back now when you said what was oh, the okay. connection. Right. But uh, interestingly, there is there is a storyline on the current Real Housewives of Cheshire that uh-huh. loosely um, ties in with the ideas of satire, irony, and parody, which I could I could elucidate for you quickly as a sign off to the show, if you like. Yes, please. Yeah. So uh, one of the housewives, Hannah Kinsella, has written a book called "Brains Are the New Tits." And it's all about using your best asset, which is not, as ladies doubtless would have assumed, 
their tits, but their brains. Fancy that. It's about use, use your brains, not your tits. Well, you might have thought, oh, foolish women, that it was just, your tits were where it's at. It's not. It's your brains that use honesty, integrity, and thinking outside the box to propel your life forwards. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting about that is on the front cover, um, Hannah has a picture of herself and over where her breasts, I was going to say would be, are. Uh, she's got sort of two cartoonish images of brains and she's holding them up in front of her breasts but she's been very vocal about how people shouldn't use their breasts to get ahead in life and critical of some of the other housewives who are more than happy to um to kind of monetize their their um breasts and all the housewives are really angry with her for doing this and saying she's a hypocrite and she's been judging them but now she's using her tits to sell the idea that brains are the new tits and she keeps saying it's irony and they're like why is it ironic and she's like because it is because that's the irony um which is interesting i Mm. think interestingly it's not even the first or only book on amazon called brains are the new tits there's quite a lot of books and diaries with that name but if you want to find out how to use your brain rather Mm. than your tits use your brain rather than your tits to go on amazon and order this book which is independently published and comes in at a neat and precise 150 pages long Mm. um which is an interesting number of pages to stop at it is i mean that irony point that point about irony that comes up a lot in literature, doesn't it, where mm. a text will be uh, making a or be calling something out by doing the yeah. very thing it's critiquing. Um, my PhD supervisor Hamish Matheson once said to me, mm. uh, "The trouble with irony is if I ironically poach you in the eye, I still poach you in the eye." Yeah, I? I think that's a good a good way of thinking about it. Um, 150 pages, brains of the new tits. Well, a, a very very minor little uh, sideline that um, sometimes. Real Housewives of Cheshire imitates life, mm. imitating art or something like that. Cool. So on that bombshell. On that, on that brainsy, titsy bombshell. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's time to wrap up. So where? Yeah. What would do we want listeners to do? Having this Use their brains, not their tits. That's right. Yes. To do what? What should they do with their brains? Uh, propel their lives forward in ways they could never imagine. And? No. Uh, they should uh, give us a yell. Yes. Yeah. Give us a yell on... Twitter. They should, yeah. Yeah, just generally. At but, Satire No yeah. More. More specifically, um... <laughs> tag us at Satire No More. Yeah. Or send us an email at satire at com if you have any comments for anything from today's episode or any observations about satire mm. and you just want to let us know that you are enjoying the podcast or are irritated by the podcast or the podcast has affected you in some way. Yeah. Let us know and join us again for the next episode. Oh, there's one other Instagram. Bit. Oh, Instagram, yeah. Hit us up on Instagram, at Talk About Satire on the Instagram, yeah. isn't it? On the old Insta. That's right, yeah. Where we're doing all of our influencing. And one other bit of news, a little bit of news, mm-hmm. is that we have actually recently been involved in another podcast, haven't we? Yes, that's right, yeah. yeah. Um, and that is the Pass It On podcast in mm. which we, members of the English Lit team at York St John, are sharing their information about their research mm-hmm. and their specialisms with one another. So... Yeah, doubtless that will be shared widely on um, from different social media accounts because it it's will. a York St John production rather it, than a Adam and Joe. It um, is work, but yeah, that that it. But it's really good. Yeah, and if you'd like to hear more of our voices, you can hear us introducing a, a range of interesting conversations between literature academics talking about all manner of things, but mostly American things in the first episode. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So check that so out. So there's that. It's the yeah. Pass It On podcast. 
or search for Words Matter, the blog where it'll yeah. be posted. Enjoy that too if you've not had enough of listening to us ramble on. Yes. But okay. for now, goodbye. Sit up. Use your mind to think up your dreams. Shut up. Overcome your challenges and propel your lives forward. And eat, eat our satire. <laughs> eat our satire. Goodbye. Bye. Mm.